Welcome to Food Navigator USA Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. The beverage industry is booming, with Grandview research predicting that rising disposable incomes, a growing population, and changing lifestyles that are more centered around health and wellness will fuel a 5.8% compound annual rate from $967.3 billion in 2016 through 2025. And yet, for as many success stories as there are among the new and emerging brands entering the beverage segment, there are many, many more failures, painting a discouraging picture for some entrepreneurs. According to industry veteran and health brand builders alliance leader James Tonkin, there's a staggering 92% mortality rate in the beverage segment in the first year following a launch. And among the handful that celebrate their first birthday, only about 50% will mark a second one. Despite these grim statistics, there are successes. And in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, Tonkin shares insights that he has learned from his 40-plus years working in the space. Drawing on his experience with thousands of brands, including major players such as Suja and Zico, Tonkin lays out what it takes for young brands to not only find their footing, but to quickly climb to the top. When evaluating whether to work with a brand or entrepreneur, Tonkin says that there are three main factors that he considers. And while he cautions that they may not guarantee success, he says there are good indicators as to whether a company has the relevance and the chops to make it to the at least the 5 to $10 million sales plateau. The first factor, he says, is the management. Um, who is the entrepreneur or the group of entrepreneurs that are behind the brand? What's their background and experience? What's their motivation for bringing the product to market? Is it a personal story? Is it something that happened to them in their personal life, which is very typical of, of the uh, startup uh, company uh, founder, but moreover, um, do, do they do they have relevant experience in some other place in their life? You know, are they a 21 year old, um, you know, fresh out of college, um, idea bound uh, kind of individual that really doesn't have any practical experience in the market, um, or are they a 45 year old? A uh, postal worker that retired as a as an inspector and's got two hundred and fifty grand in their retirement account that they want to take out and uh, and start a, a a new company in food or beverage and they may have they may uh, have some tremendous experience in in operating a, a business and understanding the atonement to the profit and loss statement and balance sheet and and attendant cash flow. So those are really important things to look at. Where, do, where does the entrepreneur or founder come from and what, what kind of expertise do they have? The second factor that Tonkin says he considers when evaluating a brand's potential for success is whether the product or it offers has a real or perceived relevance. Um, when, when a company comes into uh, a space and there was nothing there before, um, as you probably know, it's very typical in America for a bunch of copycats to come to market right after the, the uh, obvious success that the first company that blazed the territory is having, whether they're already sold or whether they're just revving up a huge revenue stream and their, their company is exploding, so to speak. 
there's that that's a very cheap way to go to market and very very few of the copycats ever you know amount to much they they um they could come out of large corporate um you know kind of of uh market tests uh, where, whereas Coke um, or Pepsi uh, are not tremendous innovators, you know they they bring in line extensions and things like that to their their uh, current stable of of products. Um, that's an innovation to them. Uh, changing a sugar uh, to a, a sugar substitute or a, another uh, type of sweetener may be an innovation internally to them, but it's a very small step. Where most of these new brands and entrepreneurial companies that get developed oftentimes are very off the radar kinds of things and and being able to adjudicate whether the relevance of that new idea or product or service really has about uh, you know a, a potential uptick in the market and can really take a hold of that white space and make something of it that's that's a trick and this is my 46th year in business, and I would say that I'm just now getting to the point the last five or six years that I'm, I'm getting much better at picking potential winners. Um, we've had, as I said, over 2,000 clients go through our, our uh, uh, operation over the last 32 years, and we've had a, a lot of companies that have lost. Some of the criteria that Tonkin has zeroed in on for evaluating a company's relevance includes that there's an audience for the product if the price is right, if the packaging is right, and if it has a steady supply chain that can support a growing brand. As for whether there's sufficient white space to support a new brand launch, Tonkin says companies need to take the time to evaluate the full picture and the players that were in the space before they make a move. The adjudication of the space you're headed towards should not be a rushed process. There's many things to understand, and the good news is there's so many great data collectors that have the ability to, to bring to market if, if um, people will both take the time and spend the money to read that have already been to the dance before. They know uh, what the size of the powdered drink industry is. They know it by flavor. They know it by brand. They know how big it is volumetrically, by pounds, you know, all those kinds of things. So if you've got a product in a, in a sachet or a stick pack and you want to bring it to market in the powder industry, you really need to know who's in the space already. Who are the competitors? How big is the space? Is it a $300 million space annually in America or is it a $3 billion space? So clearly, as you look at the larger space, it's going to allow more competition to come in. Even if you have one major player in the space that really owns it, really a part of the adjudication process today, understanding the brand relevance that you create to the consumer, particularly around millennials and Gen Xers. They're not buying corporate crap today. They're not buying what Kellogg's and General Mills is throwing down the, the lane. They want things that are better for you, healthier for you, and don't just tell me, General Mills, that the product is healthier. Show me. So when I do my own investigating, because Google is everywhere now, and so are all the other search engines, you can't hide anything anymore. Um, the days of you know, developing things and keeping them private and quiet are over. Transparency, sustainability, the ecology, the environment, those are all things that are being affected by things we're creating today. So as you look to fill white space with a product, you need to touch base with all of those different areas. 
Tonkin pointed to three examples in the beverage segment where the room for innovation is being developed appropriately. Um, you, you're aware now that water is the number one chosen beverage of choice today. Um, Ten years ago, no one would have said bottled water is going to overtake carbonated soft drinks as the, as the number one uh, beverage of choice. I don't think we'll come back from that for years. I think we'll be morphing uh, into a whole bunch of things, including water as the base ingredient, which, of course, carbonated soft drinks is mostly water, too. Um, so that there's nothing new there. It's just people are buying plain bottled water. They're buying mineral water. They're buying artesian water. They're buying purified water and spring water. And now, because water is satiating, but it also gets old after a while to some people. So that started the development of the flavored water space, right? The essences and, and different natural uh, or unnatural flavors that ended up in water. And that, that continued to grow the category. Um, sparkling has been a very small subset of the water space for many years, and there have been a lot of players in it. But it's really been very small, dynamically uh, speaking. In the last couple of three years, there's been explosive growth in the sparkling space, and you're seeing it daily with new entrants that are morphing from flat water or ambient water that's non-sparkling. They're coming out with skews in the sparkling space. They're also coming out with skews in the flavored water space. So it's growing their presence in the market, and it's keeping consumers more brand loyal, which is obviously something very important to companies that are interested in selling at some point because that's where the equity is. So from a, that, that's an example of white space growing, and, and uh, uh, frankly, there's, there's more and more players coming to the space all the time, and I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, whey protein isolate has been around for years as what I call the muscle head industry has been voracious about consuming that, that ingredient in, in lots of grams a day to support bodybuilding and, and all of that, the exertion associated with, with growing your physical frame. But now that protein is, is a very large area of new beverage and food development, inclusion of protein. Um, you probably know in the last two or three years, there's been this huge appetite to, um, to invest in other sources of protein, like plant protein. So, you know, a few brands came out with plant protein, and they, uh, they've been, you know, kind of pushing uh, uh, pea protein, as, as, as an example, is probably the biggest in the, in the uh, plant protein space. But rice is also there, brown and white rice. Um, as a protein source, chia seeds, hemp. There, there's a whole bunch of ingredients that um, then when, uh, the, when cultivated and, and uh, uh, served up appropriately can act as a great um, source, uh, oftentimes vegan and, and paleo and those kinds of things in deference to others like whey protein, which is dairy derivative. So um, that's, that's a white space that's being filled with all sorts of competitors out there that are, that are vying for that opportunity to get big enough where somebody's, somebody thinks like a Coke can buy a company for $500, $500 million or $300 million and they can, they can build the brand to a billion. Kombucha is another one. I'm not a fan personally of kombucha. 
um, uh, for a number of reasons. I, I think all the, the talk and the excitement around probiotic health, which is another huge area of continued R&D and beverage and food development. America is way behind the rest of the world relative to probiotic health and the understanding of the microbiome and microflora issues of the human body. You go to Japan, you go to Europe, you go to Africa, you go to, South, uh, to uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand. They get up every morning and have a probiotic of some sort. Um, it's just part of their program, yogurt and Yakult and uh, tons of others, um, uh, BioK, and lots of other products that are, that are global and worldwide have, uh, have captured that market for years, and it's just this, this – probiotic craze that started here 10, 12 years ago um, is morphing into something that's a, a fairly substantial category now. And there's a lot of players in it, a lot of line extensions by major brands, um, as well as specific uh, brands like GT Dave, which was one of the first to put um, probiotics in bottles uh, using, using you know, mushrooms as the, as the uh, fermenting source. Um, and now there's tons of products out there that almost are clarified. Uh, they taste better. They're le a lot less vinegary tasting and off-pitting to a lot of consumers. So uh, the, the product is morphing and filling more and more of that white space around the probiotic play. So there's, there's kind of three examples of, of companies that I think have gone into the white space and appropriately. The third factor that Tonkin says he considers when evaluating a brand's potential is how the company has been funded to date. So if this product has relevance to the market, and that's been proven, it has a good management team that's bankable, how, how are they funded? Is it individually funded by the, by the founders, and, and it's going to be a self-funded business till it finally turns profitable? Those are fewer and far, uh, farther between than those that are, that are actually uh, sold at exit. So that, that's an interesting uh, dilemma. But one of the things that we think we do well is to, is to lean in in companies and um, review and, and get deep around the marketing sales uh, strategy, the distribution strategy, uh, make sure that the financials are ticked and tied and, and that they're gap compliant because when private equity or family office money or any kind of an investor group comes to look at putting money in a company, if you're not ready to go and, you're, and your team is not ready to present to those kind of people, you will fail. If a brand or product checks all three of these boxes and appears on all levels to be a solid investment bet, Tonkin then considers what the company's exit strategy is even if the entrepreneurs have no intention of leaving their brand in the near or long term? Um, every company that I get involved when, uh, with, as I said at the beginning, I always look to what is the outcome of our involvement. Is this just a consulting gig? Or is this a dance that will take us, you know, when you bring the girl or the boy to the dance, you want to go home with them, Right. So it's not taking them there and, and running around the dance floor and then leaving. I'm a long-term player. I like to get involved in companies early. And the reason for that is I've been able to sit at the table of many large CPG companies and show them what's in our portfolio. The reason for that is as the company continues to grow, the more alliance that, that I have and our company has on behalf of our clients with potential suitors, when the time is right and the 
category hits and all those things, I've already got a relationship established. They've looked at our financials. They've met some of our executives. They've tasted the product. They've looked for it in the marketplace. They've become, quote, unquote, familiar. That is an incredible advantage over a company that grows to 10, 12, 15 million in sales and then says, wow, I'm exhausted. I can't believe how long it took me to get there. I don't want to do this anymore. Now I've got to go try to find somebody to buy my company. That is a long road, Elizabeth. So I try to shorten that road by doing these snippet meetings where I'm, just, I'm, I'm bringing seven, eight, nine brands to the table and sharing um, the, 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 you know, extolling the virtues of those brands. Um, some are going to hit uh, with a suitor, and some are going to say, pass, 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 not interested in the category, I don't care about the brand, blah, blah. But there may be two or three in that, in that, that group that they would have interest in. And if those are million-dollar companies today where this suitor A would have no interest in investing in a million-dollar company, should they become 15, 20, 30 million, it could be a totally different story. And, and, and over the last three or four years, they've watched the beverage grow. So developing relationships, keeping them close to the vest, sharing with them, being mindful that that you know there isn't there aren't any secrets in the industry. Um, if somebody if a company wants to find out how to make something, how to copy it, um, what what the metrics are around it, how they're doing in the market, they can buy all that information. It's not that difficult, and big companies do it all the time. So being truthful, being data driven, and and having a ton of information about your product and the category you're playing in is incredibly important to suitors. They want to know you know what you're doing and what you're talking about. If you don't have some idea of where you want to go and end up, there's no way you're going to get there. Moreover, you may not even know when you get there. <laughs> so it sounds funny, but it's very truthful. Having small business think about the, an exit or think about what they want to be when they grow up gives them the energy every day to get up and work towards that goal. Because if all they're doing is waking up and deal and responding to, to issues and problems and all of that, it's very difficult to be forward-thinking. And so if an exit is something that you have an interest in considering, you have to work towards that exit. And everything you do, I, when we develop brand uh, architecture for brands, because we get involved in a lot of um, ideation and, and early-stage development, we develop a pyramid, and everything that gets put into the pyramid goes in at a certain level, but whatever's in the pyramid is relevant and important to the company. Anything that's not in the pyramid is irrelevant. So it's as important to know who you are as who you are not. And that way, when you really understand your brand and you do the tweaks that it takes over the first several years, um, listening to, to consumers and ch looking at your pricing and looking at your supply chain and the changes in your packaging and your messaging and your marketing, all of those things, nothing is perfect when it first comes out. Nothing. Everything gets tweaked. Some things get major overhauls, some minor, and, more mi and minor along the way as well, so multiple times. So at the end, my advice always is know what the end game is. If you're building something and it's a family business and you want to hold on to it for as far as you can see down the road, then know that going forward. 
Um, if, if that's not your goal and you have other things you want to do in your life and you could see yourself in a business for five, six, seven years, then know that too. And then you work every day towards making that dream come true. Well, having an exit plan from the start may sound a bit demoralizing to some stargate entrepreneurs who are willing to brave the beverage space. Tonkin emphasizes that it can also serve as a goalpost that helps keep brand focused and could save them from falling off to the wayside. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you'll join me again in the future. And while to make sure you don't forget, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until then, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.